As St. Louis struggles to get a handle on crime, one avenue that policymakers have advocated for is increased use of security cameras. But wider use of surveillance technology has also prompted concerns that people are being watched for all the wrong reasons. So on this edition of Politically Speaking, St. Louis Public Radio's Rachel Lipman and Julie O'Donohue join me to talk about surveillance in St. Louis. Later in the show, the team from We Live Here talks about their latest episode that features Dr. Will Ross, a major player in the Better Together plan. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. It's a little complicated in Bolivar because there is a Parsons family there. But we also knew that it was important to make sure that that we got to where we needed to go. You know if you walk in a room and you're getting ready to make a decision and everybody in the room looks like you, you need to stop. And right now what happens in the United States Senate is as critical as anywhere else in the country. I really want the state to succeed. We want everybody to uh, know that we're all working together. I just worked hard to try to build my name where I didn't have the money. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio's political correspondent, Jason Rosenbaum. Joining me in studio today is... Julie O'Donohue and Rachel Lipman. And we're going to be talking about some of the stories that percolated around local and state politics this week. Rachel, since uh, you're in here and we have forced you away from other things, we're going to go first and talk about your story about how St. Louis officials are mulling over policies around surveillance. So what was your story about? So this is about this uh sort of two parallel tracks that are going on to regulate what's known as surveillance technology. These are things like security cameras, listening devices, phone monitoring systems, license plate readers, all of the things that we think of as kind of big brother surveillance technology. And we know that these are in use in St. Louis. Um, We know that a lot of neighborhoods and and business districts tie their cameras into the real-time crime center. This is this big electronic monitoring room that's at the St. Louis police headquarters. And for the last four years, aldermen have introduced, it's never gone anywhere, a policy that basically says there need to be some regulations around how this is used, where the data goes, and a policy for, you know, if and if you don't fit into this policy, you can't use the cameras. And there's just this confusion and debate over who is actually going to be responsible for drafting these policies, if it's up to the Board of Aldermen or it's up to the mayor's office, Mayor Leidekrusen. So what are some of proponents saying about this particular legislation? There isn't a whole lot of disagreement that these policies are needed. It is just kind of, I think the debate is over who is supposed to write it. And the confusion, I think, uh, centers on this resolution that was passed back in February, which is called the uh, Surveillance Technology Use Review. And it basically says that the city's chief technology officer has to compile this report that details all of the technologies that are currently in use by the city. how often they're used, those kind of things. Where the confusion comes in, I think, is this line that says, the report shall also include an assessment of the current use, recommendations for future use, future policies to be established, federal state laws or regulations that will be considered as policies, and it kind of goes on. The chief technology officer, who is a gentleman named Robert Gaskell Clements, interpreted that to mean that the mayor's office is going to be who comes up with these policies. And that bothers a lot of advocates of these uh, 
this law, Board Bill 94, this this measure that they're advocating for, who say that the uh, public need, there needs to be some sort of like public involvement in this. This is uh, Sarah Baker. She is the policy director of the ACLU of Missouri. We are not asking the mayor's office to unilaterally come up with a surveillance technology policy. Right. We think that entirely circumvents the democratic process that is laid out in this bill. And the democratic process is essentially that the uh, public safety department or other uh, offices within the mayor's office would draft these policies that would then go in front of the board of aldermen. And the board of aldermen would either uh, reject or accept these policies. So that's where the democratic involvement comes in, that there's legislative individuals who answer to their constituents. Here's Robert Gaskell Clemens, the aforementioned chief technology officer for the city of St. Louis. However, having read the board bill, um, there are some serious concerns when it comes to potentially unintended consequences, given the way that the current bill is crafted. What what are some unintended consequences that uh, Gasco Clemens is talking about? So he is concerned that the bill could be interpreted to move, for example, the city network under control of the Department of Public Safety as opposed to the IT department. Because there's language in the bill that basically says anything used in connection with these surveillance technologies has to uh, be regulated by this policy and overseen by this policy. Well, the city's IT network uses those you know, city network. But his question was, do you really want the Department of Public Safety overseeing the city's network or do you want the IT department, which is a specialized department that is, you know, trained in IT to oversee the IT system? He also worries that, you know, this is just a passive thing. These uh, Central West End Special Business District or, you know, pick another special business district. They make the choice to link into the real-time crime center. And it's just a passive thing. The city isn't you know, constantly monitoring these cameras. What liability does it put the city at if somebody with the South Grand Business District, for example, misuses these technology systems? And literally the only thing that the city has a say in is, or the city is connected to, is they're using the city's IT system or its, its you know, network to send these back to the real-time crime center. Julie, I think that there are a lot of ordinary people that see things like cameras as a way to enhance public safety. But as, as Rachel is kind of alluding to, placed in the wrong hands, they could be used to invade ordinary people's privacy or you know, do all sorts of shady stuff. I mean, I whenever I hear about this, I think about um, the issue with, I don't know if you guys are familiar with this, but with the Ring, which is the Amazon doorbell, mm-hmm. the Amazon uh, has gotten some police departments to allow to tap into it. I so. thought you were talking about the movie The Ring. <laughs> That's a different discussion, <laughs> Jason. But um, we but, can, I mean, we could get into Japanese horror movies if you really want to. But I went out door knocking for an assignment a couple months ago, right when I got here, and every single door on the the block where I was door knocking had The Ring, and it just occurred to me that if the police were able to access all of the rings all over St. Louis City that that you would have a pretty comprehensive, you might have a camera on you most of the time. And they're even marketing that too. I mean, I've seen ads pop up on my feed for Nextdoor, the social network. I've seen it pop up on Facebook that they're like, you know, hey, Amazon Ring, there's there's commercials for it on, on television. Um, so I, they are marketing this idea that this could be a, you know, surveillance public safety tool. And the legislation itself acknowledges that surveillance is a common, supportive, and helpful mechanism for maintaining the public and safety welfare. But 
as they put it, the laws are developing faster than the, the technologies, excuse me, are de- developing faster than the laws that govern them. So you would leave a gap between these policies governing 1990s technology as opposed to 2020 technology. So, Rachel, how much is this also related, or is it just happening at the same time, to this proposal to have aerial surveillance? The bill is kind of has come up for the last four years. It's been introduced in some form. It's taking on this urgency because there is this idea for persistent surveillance systems to come in and do this, you know, continuous aerial surveillance so that you could see, oh, this car that was involved in a carjacking sped off and and went this way. So this is why I think it started to come up now and is being discussed now as opposed to earlier in the legislative session. There are two donors from Texas that are willing to pay for the aerial surveillance? Yeah, Baltimore had a similar uh, situation where they actually ran the program secretly. It's the... um I want to say the Arnold Foundation that covers the cost of this program. And you get I've seen a lot of emails, you know, pushing it and saying, we need this. This is like a reliable witness. Why wouldn't you want something like this? And again, the ACLU and a coalition called Privacy Watch, who um, back this surveillance technology bill, they're not saying that this is a, a bad thing. They're not ruling out completely that, you know, persistent surveillance tech systems technology might be a good thing. They're just saying we want a policy, a you know, clear policy that is governing how this will be used and takes into account the possibility that the technology could be abused. Moving on to Jefferson City business, there was a report from the Post-Dispatch's Jack Suntrup about how lawmakers are using their campaign funds essentially as a way to pay for meals they have with lobbyists and other campaign staffers. In particular, this article focused on State Senator Brian Williams, a Democrat from University City, who has spent a little less than $11,000 on, quote, outings since last December. Um, I have a lot of feelings about this, but Julie, I wanted to get your take and reaction to this story first. Yeah, well, I think we should say first that um, apparently Senator Williams is an outlier. He's spending a lot more money than anyone else on these outings, or I think uh, Jack specifically said on restaurant bills uh, for the most part. So just just to to make that clear, um, I think this highlights uh, for me that this is like a perpetual problem. I think across several states um, that our laws. When people are trying to rein in lobbyist influence or corporate influence in their state capitals, they tend to focus on the amount of money. So they'll put a cap on like a $5 cap in the case of Missouri or a cap on how much a lobbyist can spend on a lawmaker. And sometimes I'd like to know more. I'm less concerned about how much they're spending and more concerned about what they're spending it on. So I'd rather have more Uh, strict laws in place about disclosure, about who you're eating with, why you're eating with them, how much you're eating, where you are, that type of thing. And I think this, this article, this may be in the weeds, but for me highlighted how when we focus on putting caps instead of like sort of more details about what, what exactly the spending is on, it kind of leaves a whole unknown area. In fact, Suntrup mentioned that specifically in the article that when there was unlimited lobbyist gift giving in Missouri, which is not that far away from us, it's only like a year or two ago, uh, lobbyists had to fill out forms about the value of the gift and the recipient of the gift. And often they were very specific about what they were doing. 
And the campaign manager for the amendment that placed the cap in place, Sean Sonker Nicholson of Clean Missouri, pushed back at the suggestion that his amendment led to less transparent corporate influence in Missouri government. Just for context, I'm going to play a clip now from Sonker Nicholson from 2018 explaining what the lobbyist restriction is in Clean Missouri. Yeah, so we say no gifts that are worth more than $5. So a cup of coffee, you're at the Lions Club, you don't, a legislator, an, an official doesn't need to worry about being ensnared and, and being in a, a tough situation like that. But when it comes to dinners, when it comes to booze, when it comes to sports tickets, all of that is off the table. I think this furthers the criticism of clean Missouri, that this wasn't really about ethics and this wasn't really about, quote, cleaning up Jefferson City, that stuff like the lobbyist gift ban was a subterfuge for a new state legislative redistricting system aimed at helping Democrats. And I, I this this type of thing that we're talking about, the lobbyist gift restrictions, was heavily, heavily marketed during the clean Missouri campaign, where the the whole thing about redistricting, I'm not saying it was ignored because Sean Sonker Nicholson talked about it on this show for like 30 minutes, but it certainly wasn't emphasized in television ads. You know, it sounds very good to restrict lobbyist gifts. And if you don't look at campaign finance reports, you probably aren't aware how someone might get around that. I, I you know, I think I think we have to give the public a break that there's this is not necessarily a super easy thing to understand how how things work. This story may highlight, again, I don't know enough about Senator Williams, really a comment on him specifically, but when you don't have competitive races for the legislature and people just have large campaign accounts, sometimes I start asking, well, why are you raising so much money? And I think at least what I saw in Louisiana is some legislators were using their campaign accounts to maintain a certain type of lifestyle. They were using it to buy, you know, football tickets to LSU, Saints tickets. They were using it to go out to dinner, uh, a lot at expensive restaurants. They were using it in Louisiana. This is specific to that place, but to buy Mardi Gras beads and to ride in Mardi Gras parades where it can cost thousands of dollars to do so. And, and by the way, you can't throw campaign literature during that or have campaign signs. So that's not like riding in a, camp, a parade where you're, you know, so-and-so running for state senate and waving and glad-handing. So I think that that is kind of a big part of this is sometimes people, if they don't have to spend money on their campaign, they can raise this money and use it to be spent in ways that kind of maintain their lifestyle. I will just say that you're right. Senator Williams will never face a competitive general election. He could potentially be vulnerable in a primary. Fair. So I think that's one of the reasons why people in safe Democratic or Republican districts raise a lot of money. And they may also want to exert more political influence by using that money to help other candidates. They can't donate directly in Missouri, but they can they 100%. can they, they can find ways. Right. We'll be back right after this message. And joining me in studio now are the members of the We Live Here team. Ashley Renee, Jalian Yang, Lauren Brown. And we're here to talk about the first episode of season five of We Live Here, which focuses heavily on the city-county merger issue and the scuttled Better Together plan. And this particular episode caught my interest quite a bit because it focused on Will Ross, who is a medical doctor who works at Washington University, who was 
inside the belly of the beast, so to speak, of the Better Together plan. Explain why you decided to focus on Dr. Ross and some key takeaways of what you found. Um, I would say we chose Dr. Ross because he gave personal experience and was able to give the meat of the situation from um, being involved with Better Together. He was able to give real experiences on how he felt he was dismissed and um, how some of his concerns weren't taken into consideration, including um, the black community, black representation, and um, just basically making sure that merging city and county would be equitable for everyone that lives in St. Louis. Yeah, and the other part is with any of our episodes, it's really important for us to have a strong character. And what's so compelling about Dr. Ross is that he was not only on the inside of Better Together, but he found himself on the outside. And I think that's really interesting for the public to hear. Um, I think it was really interesting because he got involved with this with wanting to um, figure out the health disparities. And that's one of his main, you know, his main um, works is working on making sure that the health environment is equitable for everyone. And I think that's what he thought would um, the city county merger would make that, you know, easier to do. But once he got involved, he realized that what he thought didn't end up being what he thought. So I had the opportunity to talk to Dr. Ross in 2017, before the Better Together plan was unveiled in 2019. And I asked specifically about the longstanding concerns among black political figures and black people in the St. Louis region that a merger would hurt African-American political power and by extension, hurt services to African-American communities. This is what he had to say. As an African-American who's been in the city for 30, almost 37 years, I know that history well, and I understand why, as an African-American, as part of this community, I would have some, some, some skepticism about this, about our, our voting power, our rights being somewhat diluted. I can get that. Again, the key then is to, is to structure a governance which truly is inclusive, a governance strategy which, which, which is based on this sense of egalitarianism uh, uh, that, that, that we, can, we can provide opportunities, resources. Now, as everybody knows, even with that principle in mind, there was widespread dissatisfaction with the Better Together plan among African Americans. So it doesn't seem like what he told me in 2017 was realized now. Oh, absolutely. I think it goes to hindsight 2020. You know, you don't realize certain things until it's right in front of your face. And I think for Dr. Ross, um, to Lauren's point, that he thought that being a part of Better Together, he would be able to achieve equity, equitable for everyone in the St. Louis region, and not just in healthcare, but in education and housing and job and training. So I think once he was a part of Better Together, he realized that what they were presenting to him and the community wasn't exactly what he thought it was going to be. And I think he speaks to who is at the table and who is going to be representing the St. Louis community and not just black people, but everyone as, as a whole. What I think is really fascinating is this episode showcases what it takes to make for a good political process or the reverse, not so good political process. Um, I think listeners, when they hear it, will hear a lot of tension, a push and pull in Dr. Ross's motivations. Like Ashley said, he was so motivated to make a city-county merger happen because he thought it would be better for health, 
outcomes. At the same time, a lot hit the fan when um, the rollout happened, when Better Together went public. And you'll hear that in Arendam Carr's comments. He's a volunteer also on the task force with Dr. Ross. And Arendam said that that's when they were hit with a lot of the public feedback. And so we find that community engagement, community voices are super important. But what you do with them, whether you listen to them or not, matters. And I think, honestly, when um, Dr. Ross, as a black man on this task force, on this board, he realized as soon as those concerns came about from black political leaders that he was checked. He said that they checked him. And he remembers a conversation with Reverend Starsky Wilson, Starsky Wilson. And I think he realized that maybe this isn't going to work how I thought it was. And I really tried to push. I really tried to um, help the community. I really tried to bring up those concerns. But it isn't going how I thought it would. A big theme of this episode is how Dr. Ross internally told the Better Together team a host of major concerns, which I'm not going to, to reveal on this particular podcast because I want people to listen to your show. Um, and one of the things that I don't think that the Better Together people truly heeded was this particular comment in 2017 about the prospect of, a, of the Better Together plan being placed to statewide voters as opposed to city and county voters. I'm now speaking candidly, you know, as someone, this is my personal perspective, I don't think that's the best route to take, uh, uh, to put this in the hands of, you know, of a statewide ballot initiative. I, I think St. Louisans are proud of what we can do here at, at home. I want this to be a St. Louis project with a St. Louis outcome. I think that's going to really show that, that we really are sincere and, 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 and embracing the perspectives of those who are here in this region. I wondered from the moment that the Better Together plan was announced if uh, the organizers behind that plan had taken Dr. Ross's advice from 2017, whether they would have encountered less opposition from people across the state. I think it's really tricky because uh, I think the episode will reveal that there's so many factors with the Better Together proposal and the plan that were hard for people. And of course, the statewide vote didn't make things better. Um, there was so much concern about local control. There was so much concern about black political power and representation that were at stake with that. And so the statewide vote, I think, to me, just symbolized um, where people's concerns weren't taken seriously around if their elected representatives or even appointed representatives would be truly ref reflecting them, and in this case, black folks. I think it's important that they were being transparent. Um, a lot of the concerns were that the statewide vote had to come about because of the Missouri Constitution and things would be changed. But I think if you're more transparent about this process and brought those issues to the table sooner, then maybe you would have had a different outcome. I think um, what Dr. Real Ross was expressing was not only a concern, but a fear of what a lot of St. Louis community members um, were having, and that was having folks outside the region of St. Louis decide their fate and how they were going to be um, basically uh, living. And so he was expressing that concern, and maybe if Better Together would have taken that into consideration, they would be much farther than what they are now. Even though the Better Together plan, as far as a statewide venture, is no more, um, I still think that there's been considerable blowback to the present discussion about a city-county merger. For our listeners who have not been following, right now that there is a 
effort to fill out what's known as the Board of Freeholders or Board of Electors, which will provide like a potential local vote for a city-county reorganization effort. One of the concerns among African-American officials in the city about St. Louis Mayor Lida Cruzan's selections is that they don't include enough people from North St. Louis, where it's just predominantly African-American and which could be majorly affected by any city-county merger. And from talking with board president Lewis Reed, it seems that a lot of concerns that Dr. Ross talked about in the episode are still on the minds of political leaders in the city and the county. And I think it's more than reasonable for, for people who, who have felt certainly marginalized for years to uh, have some pause and say, okay, you know what, let's go through the process, but, but let's make sure we have a voice at the table. So I'm playing that clip because I want to be a little bit more far, I want to be a little bit more farsighted in this. From talking with Dr. Ross, what are kind of his views of where this process goes from here? And does he feel like the Better Together experience poisoned the well for any discussion about regional cooperation, consolidation, merger, whatever you want to call it? I think there's a variety of opinions that he's holding. Um, Obviously, we can't speak to Dr. Ross, but we can speak to the conversations that we've had with him. Uh, We actually asked him about the Board of Freeholders multiple times, and I think the conflicting views that he has are, on the one hand, he could be optimistic about the process um, in that he still is in favor of the city-county merger. He still believes that's the best way to achieve um, health um, outcomes that are better, more equitable. And at the same time, he has said that the Board of Freeholders process is a recipe for the status quo. He thinks that the way that the Board of Freeholders are chosen, with um, some being chosen from the mayor, some from the county executive, one from the governor, that's a recipe for status quo. Um, At the same time, he said that the way that the process comes out in terms of transparency and community engagement will really um, change what the outcome could be. From my perspective, um, I feel that Dr. Ross was a little bit more optimistic about it because this was a chance for um, a group of diverse individuals from the St. Louis area to come together and present a plan in the effort of making sure that everyone was included in this city-county merger and to make sure that equity was at the top of the plan. So from my perspective, he did seem um, a little bit more optimistic about it, but I think um, once you get burned in a certain situation, um, you don't forget those scars. And so I think a little bit of him was still a little skeptical about it as well. I think the important thing is that you need to have a seat at this table. And the episode is called At the Table and Dismissed. So if you allow people to be at this table, but you're dismissing their ideas or their thoughts or their opinions, then we're just it's a continuous cycle. It's the same thing that just happened before. And so we have to make sure that Not only are we at the table, but we're allowed to eat at that table. And so this is the most important question of all. How can people throughout the St. Louis region and the world get a hold of this episode? You can find We Live Here anywhere you get your podcasts and also at welivehere.show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. We'll be right back after this message. And now we come to our reoccurring segment, Show Me Something. Julie, I want to ask you about something that you saw in the news, our life, that caught your attention this week. Um, well, uh, full disclosure, it was last week, but we're still going to talk about it. Yeah, we, um, we, we, will, we will allow it. <laughs> I was really struck by um, the New York Times essay by author Jane Smiley that is entitled 
Jane Smiley on what St. Louis tells us about America. Um, I guess I didn't realize, since I'm new to St. Louis, that Jane Smiley is from St. Louis. She went to Burroughs, and she was back for her high school reunion and wrote a pretty lengthy essay about all the, I guess, sightseeing is the best way to put it, that she did in St. Louis. Um, What struck me about the essay, well, one, she's a beautiful writer. So she writes about St. Louis in this beautiful, lyrical way where she blends in historical stuff um, in a way I wish I could write, but I can't. Um, But also I was just struck that she and I had the same reaction to certain things about St. Louis, which is that it's really beautiful in a way that I don't think people talk about very much. And Jane Smiley was actually on St. Louis on the Air last Friday, and she talked a lot about the article, which actually was written two years ago and, (laughs) and was just published recently. And she actually explained kind of what went into pitching this article to the New York Times. Adored all the driving around and looking at houses and looking at fields and looking at the river and, you know, and that's what struck me. So what happened was I think I was at the zoo and I uh, called, I, I texted or I emailed the woman who I usually do travel articles with um, at the Times And I said, how about a travel article about St. Louis? And she said, and she texted back, or she emailed back, you're kidding, right? That was a pretty (laughs) funny element of the the interview. Uh, Julie, you've lived in St. Louis now for what, three months, four months? Yep, three months. (laughs) What what are some of the things that have struck you about St. Louis so far? So, yeah, so part of what I loved about this article is it mirrored what I have been thinking so much since I've been here. Um, I love the architecture. I love late 19th century, early 20th century architecture. People from St. Louis are kind of a little bit down on St. Louis a lot because St. Louis has a lot of challenges. And sometimes I think that they don't recognize all the beautiful things there are in the city uh, because, of course, you're frustrated when other things are going on that, you know, that you that don't seem to be getting any better. You know, I'm in an unusual situation where I was born and raised in suburban Chicago, but I have family that grew up in St. Louis. My dad actually grew up in Chesterfield when Chesterfield was still a bunch of (laughs) cornfields. And my grandfather grew up north of Del Mar. My grandmother grew up, I think, in Clayton. Um, And they had very different experiences living in St. Louis. And I think about this a lot about how my experience is so much different than when my grandpa was growing up. My grandpa grew up very poor. He grew up in a neighborhood that I think was, I would assume, predominantly Jewish, but had a lot of African-Americans go to this store. Um, And now, like, North St. Louis no longer has that dichotomy where there was large white populations there. It's almost entirely African-American. but I, I often like to drive around North St. Louis to see the architecture and see what was there and also see p- parts of North St. Louis that are still alive and still have people and still have a community there. Because I think oftentimes there is a lot of focus on what's not there and what's abandoned. And we, we forget that places in St. Louis that have large 
concentrations of poverty still have a lot of people that live there and still want to see this community succeed. And I think that's what Smiley was trying to get at yeah, in her story. I think so, too. We are out of time for today <laughs> for all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. You can follow Rachel Lipman on Twitter at rlipman, two Ps and two Ns. You can follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. You can follow Julie on Twitter at... J.S. O'Donohue. We'll be back next week. Until then, so long. Bye. Baby, 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 I'm coming home to your tender sweet love and you're my one and only one. The world needs a bit of taste in my mouth, girl.